the way I'm going to do this show is similar to the way I did my last show. It's much more conversational. It's much more, let's sit down and have a deep dive into a subject. If we end up going off on a tangent that has something to do with the topic, great. We're famous for tangents. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. We can do that. My name is Eric Erickson. I'm an author, journalist, researcher, and lifelong student of history. I'm fascinated by new knowledge that challenges society's belief system of history and what we think really happened in the past. Join me for conversations with historians, archaeologists, scientists, and people who are changing the very way we view history. Welcome to Unlocking the Past. Kathleen Springer, that's... That's me. Oh, I, I'm pronouncing it correctly. So, yeah. hey, one win for the day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jeff Pigotti, is that correct? That is correct. Yep. Oh, good. We're done. Let's quit while we're ahead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're both geol research geologists, correct? Correct. So are you, are you based in White Sands, or is that just where the project drew you to because i've been there and it's not the type of place that people go i want to go live in white sands right it, so um we work at a science center um i'm physically not there but jeff is in denver it's the geosciences and environmental change science center in lakewood colorado mm -hmm. i work my team and my partner jeff is there but i'm actually physically located in southern california oh so, but Jeff and I do field work all over the Southwest U.S. Okay. And White Sands is one of the places we work. So how did you get, the reason that I invited you on the show was because the show is about new discoveries and research that change the way that we look at history. And I don't think there's anyone else more qualified to talk about that than the, the pair of you. Because the research that you've done is literally changing our history and the way that we look at how long we've been a society, how long people have been walking literally around in that area. Right. Exactly. So can you tell me a little bit about the, the project, how you got involved in it, what you discovered? Yeah, you know, really broadly. So Jeff and I work... Um, in the climate change program of the USGS and we work all over the southwestern United States and we work in a lot of national park units. We work in Joshua Tree, we work in Death Valley, in Tule Springs Fossil Beds National Monument, we work in as far west as the Channel Islands, um, oh. the Mojave Preserve. So we work kind of all over and we're looking at basically similar age sediments all over the west, um, Ice Age, and we're looking at these ancient springs and desert wetland environments to see um, how these environments responded to abrupt climate in the past. So like our focus is really doing detailed stratigraphic studies and the chronologies that go with that to understand how these ecosystems 
waxed and waned in response to abrupt warming events in the past, which there are many recorded in the Greenland ice core record during the Pleistocene. So that's our kind of stock and trade and our wheelhouse is that we actually read the rocks, look at the sediments, we date them, you know, take them out for a drink. And then we, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. That's the tangent part. And then, and then, and, you know, and then we put it all together and talk about how fragile these ecosystems were actually in the past and these exact ecosystems exist in the present and you know in light of you know current warming how might that affect these same ecosystems that are, are you know exist today all over the west mm -hmm. they existed in the past and they exist today so that led us in that relationship with the national park service in working in all these parks um it just so happens everywhere we work, fossils are spilling out of the ground. We're not necessarily studying the fossils, although I have a, a long history of doing paleontology. We're not, you know, hanging out with the fossils. We're doing the work with the sediments. But because of that sort of interaction, and we've been assisting the National Park Service in helping them understand their resources, have all these vertebrate fossils spilling out of the ground. What does it all mean in time and in space? So we help them with that, um, putting them into these frameworks or the context of, of these faunas. So because of that relationship, we were basically um, tapped by the Park Service, by the senior paleontologist in Washington, DC, Vince Santusi. He said, could you guys come? and help us understand the context of these human footprints. They had been working on these things and the megafauna, the footprints for a number of years already. And they really wanted to get a handle on how old they were because they had this sort of suspicion that, the, that, that they could be very old. And that had obviously, as you started out the conversation, important implications for the peopling of the Americas. Kind of the general rule was, you know, when you get into the Clovis and you get into the how old researchers believe societies in North America have been, they're like, oh, you know, 13,000 years. And they base that on the stone tools. They base that on artifacts that have been found. I mean, it's, it's that, because it's like you said, you can't, you can't date a fossil, right? You can't take it out to a bar and buy it a drink. You can't, <laughs> you, you, you date it based on the sediment that you find it in. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So stone tools, for example, um, you, you basically look for something else that's in association with those tools for dating, things that, that contain carbon in them, you know, charcoal or a piece of wood or plant macroposal, whatever it is that you can date by radiocarbon right. dating. Mm -hmm. And footprints are the same same way, right? You can't date a footprint. Um, right. And especially the, the, the footprints that, that were found, were being found at White Sands were, were always at the surface. And mm -hmm. so what we needed to do was to, to basically dig a trench and find these, find these footprints in the sediments themselves and then find datable material above and below each one of these these track horizons, these trackway surfaces, uh, so that you could bracket them in time. That's the only way right. that you could, we could definitively uh, put an age on on the, the footprints themselves. Yeah, to show um, that there's a stratigraphy there. Right. You know, that makes sense. That may, It's like I could use a silly analogy of like your laundry. Like if you find the jeans that are in your laundry basket at the top, they are not as dirty as the ones that have been sitting under the <laughs> 
theoretically bottom that have been there for a couple of weeks you know it's, yeah it's, exactly it, though that's that's a yeah. weird way to go about it but that's how you can judge you know the dirt that's on the how old is the dirt that's on the older genes that's at the bottom of your basket? It's called, it's called in geology, it's called the law of superposition. And mm -hmm. that is one of the immutable laws of geology. You know, the oldest mm -hmm. is at the bottom, the youngest is at the top. Yeah. How many footprints are we dealing with when I know that your your specialty is dating the, the sediment, mm -hmm. but when you were brought in, how many are we talking about one or two? Are we talking about dozens? So so this site is a trench, as Jeff said. So a trench was dug to reveal layers, multiple layers. So there's multiple stratigraphic layers with tracks on each of them. So each of those is a snapshot in time. Ding, mm. ding, ding, ding. And the archaeologists are out there and there's paleoignologists, which are the trackway experts. And this team has a trackway expert from the UK, Matthew Bennett, and David Bustos, who is the White Sands resource manager, who is an amazing track finder. He's the Zen master of the tracks, as we call him. Um, so they're the ones excavating the tracks, not Jeff and I. We are actually, you know, we're in the trench looking at the deposits, looking at the sequence, and finding material above and below these tracks to date. The tracks at this particular site from this study that recently came out and the one that came out in 21, there was 61 in tracks that were documented in this sort of smallish area of this trench and kind of the surrounding environs, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So there was an excavated, there's excavated surfaces on the edges of this trench and then this slot in the ground essentially where we're in all the time looking at the at the um the layers mm -hmm. so there's 61 tracks there but in reality at white sands national park there's thousands of human and megafaunal tracks cruising around all over the landscape uh we haven't dug trenches all over white sands national park they don't really like that uh, <laughs> but we'd like to do that um but you know the the reality is we we dug this is one dot on a map in this huge area and you we could find the same thing anywhere all over that park on the edges of this big basin do you get now as you said there the other scientists are the ones doing the actual digging and and preserving mm -hmm. and, and all that but do you have a say in like i i really want that chunk of dirt or I really want that. Like that's a good. That's a good. You tell him, Jeff. Claude, there. I'd like to get a piece of that. Like, how much you know, say do you have in that? It, it's so. So basically, what what's happening is it, it's like Kat said. It's a, it's kind of a two pronged thing. They're at the surface, right? And they're excavating yeah. these surfaces. And so it's our job to take each one of the surfaces that they're working on and trace it into the third dimension, into the stratigraphy. Mm. Um, so no, we don't tell them that that. We, we want you to dig here or dig there they, they basically go where the tracks tell them to go okay. and then we put we take those tracks and we put them into the stratigraphy and into the chronology so kind of in under these these frameworks so that we but we understand exactly where they are okay. but the caveat to that is we we have you know to to understand the the, the paleo environment and the depositional environment we have um you know gone a little farther at our behest you know it's like we need to see a little bit more here or or whatever we we really need to capture a little bit more in time um so it, in terms of the this dimension 
not the surfaces. We we have sort of dictated a little bit more of that, right, Jeff? Yeah, uh, yeah that's <laughs> yeah. It's basically every time we're like, Kath, good, deeper. Kath, good, no, deeper. Yeah, um, and that's that's when we keep digging. And so. the trenches are dug by hand um, with yeah. essentially handheld, like sort of chainsaw type things, and yeah. Uh, basically a giant chainsaw and then we break the break the, the sediment up into blocks and then we pull the blocks out of the trench by hand so it's uh it's a fair bit of work um but yeah these staff meetings must be just so much fun when you're like you know i need six more cubic inches of that strata and <laughs> well the staff the chainsaw kathleen at the at you know standing over the the guys going yeah not yeah. quite yeah, yeah more keep going more Yep. A little oh, bit uh, more. I'm how, sorry, but uh, more. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> how long like, did the process take? How long did the entire did this project take to get um, the data? Not actually parse it, not actually get into the lab, but the actual removal mm -hmm. and finding your samples. I mean, how long would you say? I mean, the original work was done in January of 2020 with yeah. the idea to come back in April, but of course we know the whole world went to, you know what, doo-doo yeah. in March of 2020. So we weren't able to come back, but we had amassed a ton of data just in that original work that had been done. And that was the basis of the first paper that came out mm. in 21. Um, and, and we were able to go back in uh, January of 22 and collect more. and. Yeah, it, it, it basically took us about a week in January of 20. It was about a week or so, okay. something like that. We did yeah, as much work. Like mm -hmm. and, and I mean, the whole the whole plan then was to 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 make the trench bigger in, in April to collect more samples, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we couldn't do that until January of 22. And that was about another week or so, something like that, where we enlarged the trench and we collected more samples for dating and, and, and whatnot. But in April um, of 22 also. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And we've been back a ton of times since, and it's usually, you know, we, we go back for a week or so at a time, something like that. Yeah. So it's been waiting 25,000 years. What's another week or two, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we, we collect so many samples when we're, when we're there. And and like you said, when we, when we get back to the lab, that's when a ton of the work starts and that's, that's a, it, it's a really time involved process. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about that. Support comes from the History's Trainwrecks podcast that focuses on stories like a temper tantrum that changed history, the president who promised not to run again and regretted it for the rest of his life, the World War II general who lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory. The History's Trainwrecks podcast, available now. I know that from reading some of the information on this that you pulled pollen out. That was one one thing. What kind of things did you pull out and you were able to test and you were able to yeah. come to the conclusions? Well, in, in January of 20, uh, we collected seeds. We collected layers of seeds uh, from an aquatic plant and they were, they were basically positioned uh, kind of above and below uh, six or seven of the different trackway horizons, right? So mm -hmm. we we're able to bracket bracket these these horizons by dating seeds and the seeds are from an aquatic plant and they gave us they gave us really nice ages um, but there was a little bit of pushback at that point and we knew this going into it and the, the reason is aquatic material can sometimes give ages that are too old okay 
And the reason is groundwater moves through old rocks. Some of those old rocks have carbon in them. So some of that old carbon gets in the water. And then if plants are living in the water, they, they incorporate some of that old carbon in their tissues. So it makes them artificially too old, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, there were a bunch of different reasons why we didn't think that was happening at our site. And we put that out in the, in the 2021 paper. Um, but we knew that we were going to have to go back and, and use different materials for dating to, to basically independently uh, evaluate those, those seed ages. And so um, when we got, got to go back in 22, uh, we collected samples for uh, pollen. And basically, we collected them from the exact same stratigraphic levels as the seed ages. So there's a, it's a direct comparison. Pollen, there's, you know, there's basically pollen is raining down on us all the time. Um, and it gets collected in the sediments that are at the, at the surface and, and, and gets buried. But pollen's really tiny. And so it's really difficult to isolate enough pollen from these, these, these sediments for dating. So we started with each, each one of these samples, we started with like a kilogram of sediment, you know, two or three pounds of sediment. Mm. And through a bunch of different various chemical te te techniques, we, we basically melt away the rock and then we sieve it so that we isolate these really specific grain sizes. And then we send it to a place for, for what's called flow cytometry, which this is really cool. The flow cytometry was developed in the medical field to separate certain types of cells from other types of cells, right? Well, people have been able to adapt this flow cytometry to, to separate pollen from not pollen based on fluorescence properties. So we can isolate pollen grains from everything else, right? And so we, we, we send these, these samples and we run through the machine over and over and over and over and over until we collect about 75,000 grains per sample. And it's just pollen, that's, that's all that's left. And the cool thing is it was conifer pollen that we, that we targeted, pine and spruce and, and fir, um, which are indicative of cold, wetter environments. Nothing like what is what is being blown around today. So we so we dated seventy five thousand grains of pollen for each one of the samples that we dated in this in this latest study, and they gave ages that are exactly the same as the original seed ages, which was yeah. really fantastic. So, wow. Now, yeah. can you take the this maybe is getting a, this is the sci fi part of my brain, but can you take the the pollen that you found and compare it to modern pollen and see if there's evolutionary changes to see if you know is it the same have trees changed over twenty four thousand years have it's, like... it's, yeah i mean it's an ecosystem change it's because the climate has changed okay so the right. climate has changed since the last glacial maximum so what jeff was saying is that pine and spruce and fir that are being found in 23 to twenty one thousand year old age sediments that pine forest so the Tularosa basin where white sands is mm -hmm. is ringed by very large mountains very high mountains and those type of trees that flora that kind of alpine ecosystem is way the hell up there it's super high yeah. elevation forest today but during the ice age that ecosystem was suppressed elevationally farther down the mountain front mm -hmm. and so that so if you can picture during the pleistocene there was forests lower down on these mountain fronts with probably a sagebrush step on the alluvial fans that ring this big basin that same area is a chihuahuan desert flora so if you look at the makeup of the tree the actual genetic makeup of the pollen or the seeds that you find and you compare them to it's it's like comparing a human being like if you look at my dna versus 
um, a Neanderthal or versus, you know, oh, where you're asking evolved about from, genetic you actually see right, genetic yeah. changes in the life. In the, the pollen in grains 23,000 years ago are Abies and Pinus. They look exactly like okay, the pine okay. pollen and the, the pollen. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, so I don't very... know about, um, pe- you know, plant genetic studies. Sure. It's just like a window in the past. It's like, how have these, yeah. have they adapted to the environment? Have they, you know, there were used to be more, they used no, to be a better environment. Now they adapt to the environment by, by, by moving mm-hmm. so geographically. Yeah. And now these things are, are, are called, you know, they call them sky islands on the top of these oh. desert mountains. They're, you know, sort of a, a forest that is sort of a relic of what was much larger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. there's a part of me it's always like maybe trees were pink back then you know it's that kind of weird you know what i mean <laughs> it's they evolved green because it it was better you know <laughs> so what's been the reaction to the study it seems like it's been pretty positive is that true um yeah i think it has been overwhelmingly positive there is you know always a faction of the archaeologic community that is going to staunchly um, you know, be like, nah. <laughs> yeah, the wheels of of academia can turn slow. Um, and 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 they can throw whatever they want at it. But you know, we have all these multiple lines of evidence. How many, Jeff? We counted them. And yeah. So well, there's there's a bunch. So I mean, even before that, going back to the the twenty one paper. Um, and the, the people wrote comments and, and wrote different papers that criticized our work and all that kind of stuff. And the cool thing was, in those papers, they they almost all ended the same way. What you this is this site's really cool. This site yeah. could be really important if it's if it is as old okay. as you say. But what we really need is you guys need to date something else. You need to date pollen, for example, and you also need to do luminescence dating, which we haven't talked about yet, which we did. Um, and and then you know if if those ages all converge, then then we'll believe it. And we're like, sweet, great idea because we were doing that all along, right? Like that's, that was the, that was the plan. And so now we've done what, what, what people have asked us to do and what we were doing all along. We've dated pollen with radiocarbon. We've done luminescence dating. We've used independent labs. We have half a dozen different other lines of evidence, you know, the geologic setting, the hydrologic setting, the ages themselves. There's a climate signal in here. That's really, really distinct. Uh, we've looked at the modern pollen versus the, the, the old, um, you know, fossil pollen. It all lines up really beautifully and so people can attack any kind of dating technique or any kind of line of evidence kind of individually in a vacuum but it's really it's this totality of the study that we've yeah. that we've just done that is the really powerful argument right you can you can try to poke holes in one or two or whatever but the convergence of all these different dating techniques and all of these different lines of independent evidence all point to the same thing and that is people really were here during the last glacial maximum This man is not allowed to watch the news. He tends to rant. It scares the dogs. So his wife told him he can no longer watch the news. So he and the dogs started a podcast. That'll teach her. Check out the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News podcast where you'll get to hear his rants on topics ranging from politics to healthcare to foreign policy to what accent you should use when talking to your dog. Available now, or at least until his wife stops him.
So tonight, you, you said we haven't spoken about luminescence. Yeah. Let's talk about that then. Let's. So luminescence dating is completely different than radiocarbon, right? Radiocarbon dating is based on the decay of carbon-14 over time, right? And so we basically measure how much carbon-14 is in a sample now. We know how fast it decays, and so we can, we can back-calculate how old the sample is. Luminescence dating is based on the buildup of luminescence properties, specifically uh, energy, in the crystal lattice of quartz grains, right? And so, so it's a buildup process. It's in quartz, not organic material, mm. um, and it's done in a in a completely different different lab. And those, so basically, what we're what we're dealing with is dust being blown around today, or dust being blown around in the past, um, is exposed to sunlight. And when quartz grains get exposed to sunlight, the the energy that's that's trapped in these these crystal in, in these quartz crystals is released, and we basically zero out the clock, right? So basically, anytime that that a quartz grain is exposed to light or heat it zeroes out the clock, it starts over. Then these grains get deposited and they get buried. And now the clock starts ticking and the buildup of this energy in the, in the crystal lattice uh, continues over time. And so we use that, that that's the, the fundamental um, basis of luminescence dating is that. And so we're dating the last time that these grains were exposed to sunlight. In other words, when these sediments were buried. Yeah. And so, and they, we, so we dated, uh, multiple samples from the same stratigraphic horizon within the footprint bearing sequence. And again, those ages came out spot on with the, with the original seed ages and now with the pollen ages as well. And that, that's something that really kind of jumps out at me is you talked a little bit about the pushback and you talked a little bit about these different camps and, you know, as a student of history myself, like I know there are people who have, reasons why they want their theories to be right i mean there's a lot of grant money there's research there's honor and glory the whole thing and there is a lot of discussion out there now and in the last couple of years about exactly what you're working on is society older i know there's um a, a discussion about where humankind really started did it really start on the african continent and there's some that say well maybe it sprung up in different areas there's all of these different theories that in the last five years have really started to come up some of them unfortunately <laughs> and i've talked to some of these people on some of my shows um have to do with ancient alien theories and they have to do with all these other things and it's like you know what mm -hmm. if you got the proof i'll listen to you but a lot of them don't yours is pure science here's the pollen here's yeah. the quartz here's yeah. this yeah and Somebody can't argue with that and say, well, you know, society was this, society was that. And you're like, no, here's the numbers. You can't right. argue with the pure numbers. Right. It's a it's a wonderful example of the process of science. You know, we're not archaeologists. We're we're geologists. We're research geologists. We work on climate change, you know, that that kind of thing. And so we didn't really have we had no preconceived notions of what the ages should be. You know, what, what we we know about Clovis and pre-Clovis and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, to us, it, it, it when we got into this project, the actual number didn't really matter. It was, we wanted to get, get it right. The methodology, correct. Yeah. Right. We wanted it to establish the methodology and, and do it really carefully and systematically and, and, and really scientifically uh, robust fashion. But ultimately the, the number is where the data takes us. That's it. Like there was, there was no, there was no preconceived ideas or notions in that for, for us at all, which, you know, it's maybe looking at, at these kinds of questions with, with really fresh eyes and, and objective eyes is, is, is maybe a, uh, a really nice lesson to learn.
So what's next? What's um, are there more presentations? Do you is it conferences? Is it on to another project? What's what's the next? Well, I mean, you know, the White Sands work is is ongoing. I mean, we are we're not even close to being done. So you can consider what we are talking about today is the latest chapter in a in a long story mm. that's going to come out eventually about White Sands. And you know this trench is 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 deeper. It's long. It's longer. That trench is on the east side of this big basin. We're actually exploring the west side of this basin, and um, looking at numerous sites um, with the with the same team, uh, looking for human megafaunal footprints. Um, any other evidence of human, obviously human cultural artifacts, if they are ever there. Uh, the footprints are pretty, pretty good though, <laughs> and uh, so we're we're continuing to do the work and 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 trying to understand the entire story, the the, the in space and in time, and what the environment was like, um, even getting quantitative information about what the temperature ranges were like, just kind of really trying to do sort of the whole enchilada, sort of a you know a, a basin wide integrative kind of a study um you know ultimately i mean i'm just we're just um you know this is what we're doing but we have started exploring other areas of this mm -hmm. park and and we're not joking there there are i mean this one study is a pinpoint in a very very large area and the resources that these people in megafauna were exploiting were obviously there because there's evidence of their presence everywhere was there like a eureka moment was there a moment where you looked at the data and you went whoa well if for us i mean i i mean jeff may there might be a couple eureka moments you know when you got the dates back but uh, for me i mean you know because i'm always in the, we're in the dirt and I, you know reading the rocks and the eureka moment was for me like because we've worked all over and mm -hmm. looked at these kinds of deposits these sort of you know, water dependent ecosystems that we look at, like looking at this trench going, my God, the, you know, the oldest footprints are like right here. There's a lake, there's a lake that, that a big ice age lake that was there, but the footprints start where it's not a lake, mm. not a lake. People were not walking around in a lake. People keep saying that people weren't walking around in a deep lake. They were walking around on this lake margin that was available after this lake receded and drew down during one of these abrupt warming events that Jeff and I study all over. So it's this big event, it's called Dansgaard Oshkur event. Number two happened about 23.3 thousand years ago. And post that time, the lake receded and this different type of sedimentation was occurring. And that is the package of sediments where the people and the animals were walking around for what we've documented so far, 2000 years. So for us, that was a cool Eureka moment because it's like, oh my God, there's a climate change thing in this sequence. Yeah. And uh, that was very, very exciting, but it's because of our experience everywhere else, we were able to recognize that in the rock record. Yeah. And when we knew the timing, it went, well, it all matches.
Hey everyone, I have been in the podcasting space for years and have hosted and created numerous shows and long ago I got my start in radio when I was just in my teens and I have loved every minute of it, but I've definitely learned lessons along the way. That's why I sat down and created the book, How to Start a Podcast in Less Than a Day. I wanted to show people that creating their own podcast wasn't as difficult as they might think. The book is a straightforward, step-by-step guide to take your podcast from concept to launch, as well as promotions and monetization. I love what I do, and you can have the same experience. No long-winded explanations, no selling of other courses or products, no expensive options, just down-to-earth, easy, step-by-step information on how to get your podcast launched without stress, often using the resources you already have, and without laying down a lot of money and in less than a day. How to start a podcast in less than a day. Available now from Amazon. Check the links in the show notes and go out and start your own show. Scientists often, you have to remain removed from your work. I, I, I would even dare say there, you have to be emotionally distant sometimes because there's the danger of, like you were saying earlier, it's like, follow the facts. You have to, right, right. but at that moment, when that Eureka moment, did you feel connected to these people from 20,000? I think you literally were looking at a moment in time from 20,000 years ago when these people were kneeling at the Water Eric, honestly, I feel that every time I'm out there, you yeah. look at these footprints and you look at the at 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 a mammoth print that this that's this big around, and you're just like, I'm standing on a snapshot in time mm-hmm. in a whole different world. I mean, that is sci-fi. That's being transported to another time. Like, and you know, you're walking around going, God. You know, you, it, some places it's so thick with footprints, you, you're just like, God, I'm going to step on them. I don't want to step on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, but it really is an, a really evocative feeling to just kind of, and, and especially when you kind of have the knowledge then, you have this knowledge of how old it was, what it was like. You know, you can sort of picture in your mind what this basin looked like back then. And I mean, that's what I do every time I'm out there. So that that's kind of a constant and then when you have the indigenous people that claim white sands as their homeland out in the field with us and then they tell us their stories Mm -hmm. and they tell us how it makes them feel and you know they have native american words for the megafauna believe it or not and you know they tell their stories and they tell us your numbers really don't mean really a lot to me because we were always here but for us our response always is, well, the science then is converging on your story. Yeah. The science is converging on your oral history. And that's kind of neat for us too. Mm-hmm. It's really neat to have the um, the different folks from the different tribes and Pueblos out there in the field talking to us. And that's interesting that you bring that up. There's There was a story that I was following about the wild horses in North America. Have you heard about this study? that came out a few months ago yeah if yeah 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 where they it's a it's a it's a complicated study but the the kind of the broad strokes of it are they thought that the modern wild horses all came from the pueblo incident when the native americans 
were able to get them from the Spanish, and then that led to the modern wild horse in North America. But the ones that were native to the continent were all hunted out by the Clovis, so they're not related. But they did this study, and they were able to trace the modern wild horse back further than that incident. And part of the reason they were able to do it is they listened to the oral traditions of the Native Americans who were saying, we've had horses longer than you say we did. And yeah, they had, and when they actually listened to the stories and they actually gave them credence and said, you know, we're going to honor your history, they were able to go down this path. And then they did DNA testing and everything else to prove that the, the stories were correct. So there's a whole world of all these tales that we have not listened to. And if we just kind of open up our ears a little bit there's more information that we can use in the process right. it sounds like right and the national park service is really you know trying to involve all of the tribes and pueblos that yeah. claim white sands as their homeland and invite them or you know at least inform them of all the goings on that you know that we do out there i'm gonna ask one last question and then we're i'm gonna wrap this up um do you teach as well, or do you just did either of you teach, or are you just researchers? Not just researchers, but I mean, we don't we don't teach currently. I mean, we, okay. we give a lot of we've given a lot of lectures at universities mm -hmm. and and the like. Um, but yeah. So what do you? What's your advice to the 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 new researchers coming up, or the students that are interested in heading into this area? I, what do you tell them? I mean, you know, again, we're not archaeologists, but people that are in the archaeology field or students in the archaeology field, this opens up a whole new avenues of research. Do you know how many Ice Age pluvial lake basins there are in the American Southwest? White Sands is not the only one. I mean, if they never look there, they should. People didn't ever look in these types of places. They really should, because um, we have a very strong inclination that there's going to be more and more these type of of studies in the future because white sands is not unique let's put it that way and so i mean i think that that's a whole new avenue if, if and, and human footprints are are an imprinted record they they are more powerful than an cult than an artifact in my opinion you know mm -hmm. a stone tool because it is a snapshot in time, as I said, a footprint is a snapshot, and and it and it proves that they're there. It's an imprinted surface, and if you can, like we did, bracket them in time, then you're really golden. You you are able to tell a really powerful story, without without human cultural artifacts, without stone tools, without habitation sites. You're you know the people were clearly there. And they were there for whatever resource the animals were also there for because the animals are ridiculous, Eric. There's mammoth and camel and bison and horse and and, and giant ground sloth and saber-toothed cat and dire wolves. They were all cruising around this place the same time the people were. And that also is a very important point because that brings back in time the sort of coexistence of the people and the megafauna. Mm. They didn't just come over across the Bering Strait 13,000 years ago. I mean, they, they there's a longer lived coexistence. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's also a, an important implication of this study. One thing I always find interesting when I'm talking to people 
not interviewing them, but you just talk to people and they're like, well, we have the evolution of man. And at one, one day they were, you're saying they were my term cavemen. And then the next day they were human. And I'm like, no, there were different trees and some of them branched off and survived. And some, a lot and of them interbred. And yeah. we all have, a lot of us have Neanderthal DNA in us. Lots yeah. of us. There's yeah. the whole, uh, the, oh, what's the, uh, uh, oh, positive, oh, negative. Like they're, yeah. that's part of, like, we still see traces of it in our genetic uh -huh. makeup of where they came from. And gosh, there was even a thing about COVID that came out is like some people react to COVID differently because of their genetic makeup going way right. back through our evolution. Right. But there are some people, they just think it's a straight line. They just think it's like, we went from A to B to C to D. It's like, no, that's why we find the, Recently, there was the find of the um, the the fossils and the remains of another branch of shorter mm -hmm. human humans, and and we're always finding different things. So you really did get a snapshot of one moment with, yeah. of this mm -hmm. group. That's incredible. Yeah. The way you describe it is just <laughs> <laughs> nobody can see the video, but of like because it's we do radio style, but oh, like the excitement and the smile that you have is you're like. Yeah. that's yeah. what it's about right Pretty that's cool. why you got into this <laughs> yeah. we're very fortunate we we are really actually really fortunate and honored to work there because it's an amazing place and yeah